Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. jumping into our Christmas series, um, primarily because it was, it was last, early last November that I was reading and um, kind of came across a different idea for Christmas as I was looking through the scriptures. And um, it just makes sense that we would jump into the book of Revelation for Christmas, doesn't it? I mean, everyone's probably like, when am I gonna hear a Revelation-focused Christmas series? Because, I mean, I mean, everyone's like, why are everybody so slow to pick that up? Because it just makes sense. Um, so, so why Revelation at Christmas? Well, number one, a Christmas is bigger than we think, and it's bigger than, bigger than oftentimes our, our minds are wrapped around. Like most things, we settle for much less than what God wants for us and what he wants to reveal to us and show us his vision and his desire for us. I think in a lot of ways, um, in a lot of ways I've missed the, the grandness of Christmas because it's really easy to kind of settle into this little tiny space of, uh, of, of, of we, we have this mental image of this quiet night with the stars shining and in this barn that, that for some reason in my mind feels cozy, but I'm pretty sure I've never been in a barn that feels cozy at night in the winter. <laughs> but, but, but we kind of have this picture and we have this little, little, you know, little, little trough that, that a baby's laid in with with straw, which I don't know if you've ever slept on a straw mattress, but it is not comfortable. And, and Mary and Joseph and, and a number of animals, or if, if you caught the um, pretty phenomenal uh, video that we put out this week of Kyle and his kids mentioning one starry night. I don't know that there was cheetah, cheetahs or brontosaurus uh, dinosaurs there, but, but the animals kind of around and, and then the shepherds show up and there's just kind of this, this smallness of the incarnation. But there's something much bigger going on. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15 says this, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation 21 says this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, think about that for a second, who's seated on the throne? It is Jesus Christ, the lamb, the lion, the savior. He who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all 
things new. That's, that's the bigness of Christmas. <laughs> that Christmas was that moment that, that, that moment where God actually started to flesh out, literally flesh out his plan of making all things new. Christmas is that moment. You see, all things new, that is what God is doing. In a world of competing voices and, and worrisome chatter, even in the midst of that, God is making all things new. When I'm inundated with fears or weakness or brokenness, God is in the midst of making all things new. The overwhelming needs in our community and in our nation, homelessness, addiction, fallout of wars, financial struggle, a government that can't actually fix anything, but God is making all things new. Nations of the world are caught up in an endless cycle of conflicts and wars, but he is making all things new. You see, that's the good news of Christmas, that, that God has actually put into the flesh his plan of making all things new. And you see, we've traditionally, in a, in a lot of ways, limited our Christmas perspective to a young man and a young woman who spent the night in a stable and gave birth, and there were some shepherds that, that showed up, and later we, we, and sometimes we kind of throw the wise men there, even though they weren't really there that night. And, and along with a visitation on a hillside of some angels, what, what I wanna do this Christmas is broaden our perspective to the cosmic nature of Christmas. That what we, what we, what we see in the Gospels is true and accurate, but it's a little bit veiled because Christmas is much larger and a much larger event than in a small town of Bethlehem. Eugene Peterson says of Revelation chapter 12, he says, this is not the nativity story we grew up with, but it is the nativity story nonetheless. <laughs> it is a nativity story. In fact, in this story in Revelation 12, there's no baby in a manger there's no shepherds rejoicing or wise men bringing gifts and worshiping. There are most definitely angels in this nativity story though. However, they're not actually singing. They are actually engaged in a heavenly war of eschatological proportions. In this story, there is a woman who's beautifully clothed, a male child, a son, and a fiery red dragon ready to devour that child who is to shepherd all nations. That kind of breaks the, the walls out of, of the stable and makes this a much larger, grander event. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Revelation chapter 12 and we're gonna just look at the first two verses. Because this Christmas, I want us to clearly see the stakes and the power and the glory that is Christmas. Because I think more than anything else, as, as, as I get up every morning, as I go through the day and hear all kinds of news and see what's going on around me, and maybe you experience this as well, sometimes I need some reassurance that God is doing what he promised he would do. And what we see in Revelation chapter 12, verses one and two, we see the promise 
that God makes all the way back in Genesis. We don't just see it in the physical world, but we see it everywhere, both physically and spiritually. And so in Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse one, it says, and a great sign appeared in heaven. A great sign appeared in heaven. It was more than a decree made by Caesar Augustus that drove Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, to this place that was prophesied about. It was more than a decree from a governor. It was a sign that was seen in the heavens. It was more than just the star that led wise men from where they were in the east to Jerusalem through, through Herod's palace, but there was a sign that all of heaven saw. Does that widen our perspective? It's not just that there were some wise men who saw a star, a sign up in the sky, but, but, but what, what, what we see in scripture is that there was a sign that extended to all of the heavens. Everyone was on notice that something's happening. It didn't escape anyone in all of the heavens. So he says, a great sign was seen in the heavens, that the cosmic reality of, of Christmas. And, 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 and John goes on to write in this vision that he saw, he says, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Like that's a pretty grand description of a woman's dress, isn't it? <laughs> A woman who's, who's there, she's, she's the sun and the stars and the moon, like the, the most amazing thing. When, when you wanna describe something spectacular, something that is oftentimes indescribable, just look out in the morning or evening and see the sunrise or the sunset, or, or when you're outside at night, seeing the moon in all of its different phases. And that's the glory and majesty and splendor that this woman who is this sign in the heavens for all to see, that that's how she looks. She is in this spectacular, she's, she's just adorned spectacularly. And to kind of cut to the chase, John is seeing a vision and he's describing the nation of Israel. Because early, early, early in scripture, God says that I will bring the Messiah, the savior of the world through my chosen people, the people of Israel that I have set apart and he will come through the line of David and he will come through Israel. And so this woman who's clothed with the sun and the moon and there are 12 stars around her head symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel that there's this woman, she's, she's basically, and we can even broaden that to the place of John's vision because John is seeing what is really happening behind the curtain in redemptive history, and he sees that God is bringing the Messiah through his chosen people, through his family, and the church, we have been grafted into that family. And so we get to be part of that because of what Jesus did. And, and so it says there's this, this woman clothed in this incredible, glorious splendor it's interesting because we, we see another description that, that is reminiscent of this back in Genesis 37. 
It's when Joseph has this dream and it says, it says, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And as we read on in Genesis, we see that, that God is giving Joseph a vision through his dream of what Israel will do. And so it's pretty clear that here in Revelation 12 that this woman is symbolic, is, is symbolic of Israel and God's chosen people. And, and here's something that, that is really interesting to me. Many of you have probably read through the Old Testament and see that Israel did a great job of obeying God's commands, right? They were not like a pain in God's side. They did a super good job of always only worshiping him and him alone. They never chased other pursuits or passions. They did a great job of being consistent. Not really. But you know what? This is how God has always seen his people. Even in the midst of our rebellion, even in the midst of our sin, our disobedience, the way we, we pursue other things before God, he still sees us because of who he is and because of the, of the blood and body of Jesus Christ. He sees his church, he sees his people as those who are clothed with the sun and the moon with a, with a crown of stars around their heads. Have you ever thought that that's how God sees you? <laughs> that's a true statement, God sees you that way. So no matter how you feel, no matter how you've messed up, no matter how you, you feel like I've blown it and I need to do almost everything over, that when God sees you through his son Jesus Christ, he sees you as shining like the sun and reflecting like the moon and adorned with the stars of heaven. So don't see yourself in any way lesser than that because that's how God sees you. And maybe even let God's vision of what you are and who you are motivate you to loving obedience <laughs> because that's how God defines you. Like what an incredible picture that God has always seen his people that way. And, and so we see in the text uh, the, the vision continues, and so he says, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And, and so there's this woman who's adorned with, with this splendor and glory, and, and she was also pregnant and she was thick into it with, with the pains of, of giving birth and the agony of giving birth. Genesis chapter three, verse 15 says this. The moment that Adam and Eve rebelled against God and sinned and disobeyed, the moment that they did that, God comes to the garden and finds them. And he says this to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman 
and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's interesting when you read Genesis 3.15 in light of Genesis 12, isn't it? He says, I will place enmity between you and the woman. What woman? That woman who's crowned with the sun, with the moon under her feet and the 12 stars crowning her head. And, and the woman who's in labor and about to give work, birth. And it says, I will put enmity between you and that woman who's bringing forth a child. And, and it's interesting because he goes on to say to Eve, in that moment, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It's so interesting that, that again, there's, there's, there's a personal, intimate understanding of this moment in redemptive history, but there's also a very large understanding of this moment in history. Because you see, God says to, to the serpent, he says, look, I will put enmity between you and the woman and her offspring, and he will defeat all that you had hoped for. And then he says to the woman, he says, you're in childbearing, there will be pain, and it will be difficult to bring forth new life. And any, any woman who's been pregnant recognizes that. And hopefully her, her, any woman's husband who has gone through that with her recognizes that he has no clue. <laughs> but every woman understands that there is great agony and pain in childbirth. But on the larger stage, in the bigger picture, here's what's really cool. Every time a woman gives birth, it is a microcosm of the redemptive plan of God for humanity, that God will bring a child through pain and suffering and through pain and agony of the human race. We will go through difficulty and pain and suffering, but there will be a glorious moment at the end where we see what we've been waiting for and working for and, and been in pain and agony for. All of, those, all of those birthing pangs will result in something glorious. You see, the birth has the entire universe's attention, both seen and unseen. In, in, in the visible world, what you see is this little corner of a little town in a little stable, in a little manger. But what you also see in Revelation 12 is that there is a grand stage where the entire unseen realm, all of those who rebelled against God's sovereignty, they are put on notice that there is something happening that is from long ago that was predicted from far, far away that this is happening and that flesh is being placed on the plan of God to redeem his people, forgive sin, and punish evil. And, and so see, this is the promise that first we see in Genesis 3.15 further clarified in Genesis 12 when God says to Abram, he says, I want you to go where I show you and through you all nations will be blessed. Not through Abraham, 
but it is through the people that God chose to bring the Messiah through Jesus, Jesus Christ, through the nation of Israel, through the line of David, that all nations, all people, no matter their ethnicity, would be blessed through that birth and that child and that event. And then, and then it's developed throughout the Psalms and the prophets. And in two short verses, all of history up to Jesus' birth is basically summarized. There's a sense of promise, an expectation of hope, a longing and a counting down in these two verses that, that, that there's a sign in the heavens and a woman clothed in majesty is pregnant and about to give birth, give birth to the, to the redemptive plan and correction that God has given even in the midst of our rebellion and, and, and Satan's evil and man's fall. You see, God had promised the Messiah through Israel and now is that time and he will save his people, specifically those who've surrendered their lives to him. And, and, and I think one of the things that we have to recognize about Christmas and understand about God's plan is that it was interesting. I heard a, I heard a pastor, uh, and I think very well-meaning, but, but he was talking about what we have in Christ and what we have to look forward to. And he made this statement, talking about all of the bad things that are happening around us, all of the things that are, are detestable and all of the things that are depressing. And he said, but don't worry because we win. But I think that might be misspoken there because we don't win. Jesus wins. And only those who are surrendered and is given their lives, lay their lives down, die to themselves, take up their cross, those are brought into that place because Jesus wins. You see, when, I think when we talk about we win, we pit ourselves against those who are not part of Christ's family. And those who are not a part of Christ's family are the very ones that we leverage our lives and our testimonies for. Because God loves every single person no matter what their behavior is and calls them to repentance and forgiveness. And so we have to adjust that thought and say, you know what, we have assurance that Jesus has already won and he will bring those who have surrendered to him into that fold. And so we're, we're not necessarily a team of winners, we're a team of surrendered men and women who trust Jesus and his victory and that until he comes back, that we are called to, to witness and testify to those all around us, no matter who they are, that they too can receive that salvation and be part of that people. And so, and so there's, while there's hope and there's joy, there's also pain, just like in labor and childbirth. I kind of wonder, 
and I don't know, this is definitely me projecting human emotion and behavior onto God, but just bear with me for a second. I wonder how often as, as God has developed this plan for redemption, I wonder how often he looks at us and his people, and just like a, a, a woman in labor or, or a woman who's pregnant and experiencing these pains going up to pregnancy, I wonder how, sleep, how many sleepless nights God has as he looks at me and says, oh my goodness, can't you just get it? <laughs> I wonder how often we give God indigestion. <laughs> I wonder how often God is just kind of there and going, this is painful, but it's worth it because he loves us and he wants us to be with him for eternity. You see, God has made a specific choice of how to reach, redeem, and restore humanity. God's made a specific choice. And here's what's interesting about God's choices. Anytime God makes a choice, there is always, always resistance to his choice. You look through scripture. The cool thing about this is that God made a choice to reach, redeem, and restore humanity, not through the angels, but through humanity, specifically through the line of David. And God's, as I said, God's choices are always opposed by someone, whether it's those who are rebellious, whether it is those who are ignorant, whether it is those who are arrogant, or whether it is those who are just simply wicked. God's choices are always opposed. Every choice God has made, there's been opposition. So I think one of the questions for us is, is am I in opposition to God's choices? <laughs> Do I stand as one who is rebellious or arrogant or prideful or, or even wicked in the, in, the, in, the, in the midst of God's choice? Or do I trust God's choices? Do I trust that God is good and that he's doing exactly what, what is best for his glory and for our eternity? And so here in, in Revelation 12, one and two, we see the promise that God made start to happen. And that's what Christmas is. It is the fulfillment of the promise that God made for redemption of all of humankind. And so this week, here's, here's what I wanna challenge us to do. Because how do we live this promise out? Because we know that, that Jesus has already come, he's been born, he, he lived his life exactly how he was called to live it. And then he sacrificed himself to people who didn't deserve him. And then he rose again from the dead. And then he ascended to heaven. And now he's, he's on the throne, he's reigning. And he is preparing to return for his people, those who've surrendered themselves to him. So we know that that promise has already passed. So how do we live out that promise day to day? One way that we can live out that promise is that with that promise comes the promise of wonder. Think about this for a second. Isn't it incredible to even imagine that, that God would do this? We, I, am, I am almost, I'm almost numb to the wonder of what God has done. Every so often, I, I'm, I am in awe, and I'm amazed at what God is doing, but so often, I, I just see it as regular 
or typical. You see, I think God wants to maybe for some of us this week restore our wonder in what he is doing. It's so easy to focus on all of the negatives and miss the wonder of what God's doing. You see, we live in a culture where we are assessors rather than admirers. <laughs> we assess everything that happens. Rarely do we admire the beauty of what's going on. So often we move to evaluation rather than just sit in awe at what God has done and what he continues to do. See, in Psalm 46, the psalmist writes, he says, come behold, stand in awe. Don't assess, but admire. Don't evaluate, but be in awe. Come behold the works of the Lord and be still and know that I am God. Maybe some of us in this room and watching online today, maybe some of us need some wonder. Maybe you need to take a break from your evaluations and your assessments of everything around you and just behold God's beauty and his majesty and his sovereignty and be in a state of wonder for a minute. Maybe, maybe it's time for you to go, I don't know, like to Yosemite. <laughs> and stand before something that's much bigger than you and just sit in wonder and awe and behold what God has done. Another thing that I think we can, we can live out this week in this promise is the promise of prophecy. Isaiah prophesied the virgin birth more than 700 years before it occurred in Isaiah 7.14. Around that same time, Micah predicted a king, the king would be born in Bethlehem in Micah 5.2. Around 600 BC, Jeremiah predicted Herod's massacre of the infants in Jerusalem in Jeremiah 31:15. Maybe some of us in this room need confidence that God is who he says he is and you are secure no matter what the world tells you because God keeps his promises. Not only can I be in wonder, but I can have great confidence because of what God has done. Maybe this morning, maybe this week, you need to walk in the promise of hope. You see, Christmas time in the world brings a momentary, temporary relief to those who are not part of God's kingdom. Just for a second, just for a second, Christmas time brings maybe a little bit of hope for people that, that things are good or better, but that goes away pretty quickly, doesn't it? It's fleeting. But for those who are part of Christ's family, no matter what we may have experienced, God has been alongside us and we have the promise of his love. Not only do you and I have real hope right now, but we have hope that extends even beyond death which is probably one of the greatest promises for us to walk in, and that is the promise of Christ's return. This is fascinating to me. We talk so little about Christ's return and so much about our current problems. But do you realize that scholars have identified 1,845 biblical references to the second coming of Christ which outnumber the references to his first coming eight to one. Think about that for a second. The Bible focuses eight to one on the return of Jesus over his first coming.
And how many of us know that, have assurance that Jesus came the first time as a child, as a baby, and he accomplished his mission? The Bible has eight to one odds <laughs> that Jesus is coming back. <laughs> That's incredible. That is a promise that we can trust and rely on and recognize. You see, Jesus, Jesus doesn't win. He's never been actually off the throne. And in his compassionate, patient waits for us to acknowledge him and for us to pursue others. We just sang this morning, Joy to the World, which the author wrote Joy to the World, not as a Christmas song, but as a song anticipating Christ's return. That was, that was his point of joy to the world. The Savior reigns. And, 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 and so, and so what, what's incredible about this is that this week you can walk in the promise that God has given to us that is Christmas. You can walk in wonder. You can walk in, the prof, in confidence of prophecy. You can walk in the promise of hope and you can walk in the promise of Christ's return. That's what Christmas is all about. It is about a promise that God made when we were at our lowest and he leads us to the highest place. God sees you in this moment as one who is, is crowned with the sun with the moon under your feet and the stars lighting you and your path. That's the confidence that we can have. This morning, we're going to, again, take communion. And I think one of the reasons, one of the many reasons, it amazes me every time I step into communion, it amazes me that communion is so multifaceted. It is not just one purpose or point, but it, it encompasses so much. And when I think about what Jesus did and what he asked us to do as he was with his disciples sharing a meal, he said, I want you to do this to remember what I've done and it is a reminder of the promise that has been fulfilled and the promise that will be kept that not only did I come to be with you in this room at this meal before this pretty dark night, but I came so I could do the first half of the work so that when I come back, I will gather up all of the people who've responded to my call of repentance and I've been able to forgive and make a new people. So Jesus said, every time you gather, when you come together, I want you to remember what I've done. And so he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which was broken for you. And every time you take it, I want you to remember my promise that I came and I will return. Let's take the bread together. And then Jesus took the cup 
And he said, this cup is symbolic of what's going to happen. That in order to fulfill the promise and the prophecies and to pave the way for my return, my blood will be shed and it will be poured out for you. So do this in remembrance of what I've done and in motivation for what I've called you to do, to join with me. So let's take that cup together. I wanna invite the prayer team to come forward right now. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've been overwhelmed by the things around you, maybe the things of the past year, maybe the things that have happened this past week. And maybe you need to be revived in the wonder that God has for us. Maybe you need to be reminded to behold what God has done and be still and know that he is God. Maybe this morning you need to be reminded that God keeps his promises and his word. Maybe you need hope. Maybe this morning what you needed was to be reminded that Jesus is coming back. Oftentimes when we need things, God places people in our lives. So I would encourage you, if you need something this morning to come forward and get prayer, because there are a few things more encouraging and more powerful than people speaking to us, having conversation with us, reminding us of what is true and what is real and what is definite. So let me pray for us as we celebrate what God has done and what he has yet to do. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for your word and how, God, you give us such an incredible breadth and depth of story and information on what you are doing so that we can have the ultimate confidence and boldness to live out our lives even in the midst of things that are unwanted and unhelpful and even evil. God, I thank you for giving us the picture and the story of the baby in Bethlehem, but God, I thank you also for giving us the grand picture of, of a sign that all of the heavens and the earth saw and, and of, a, of a woman who, who you have called out, who you have, have clothed in glory and splendor and, and of a woman who is bringing salvation and redemption to all who will repent and come to you in longing and desire and humility. And so, Father, as we go through this week, I pray that we would be a people who, whose very presence brings real hope and real peace and real joy. Not in silence, but in boldly declaring the love and the redemption that Jesus Christ brings to humanity. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.